Tonight, we are very excited to have with us one of the most fascinating and influential artists of our time. She comes to us, meaning Anne Hamilton, she comes to us after the run of most successful and widely discussed installations, the event of a threat at the Park Avenue Armory in New York, which took place in 2012. It has been described in the New York Times as complexly participatory, encompassing experiences, both active and contemplative. We are at the Hirschhorn Museum mostly proud because Anne is also a member of our board of trustees and as such she helps to guide our museum's vision. Anne Hamilton has been credited with enlarging our collective vocabulary of how we have come to define and appreciate the arts in all its forms. A native of Columbus, Ohio, Anne's earliest interest was in textile design and later in sculpture after earning her master's in fine arts from Yale University. Influenced by many additional disciplines, including photography, poetry, video, and performance, Anne's installation often involved dense accumulation of materials. A room lined with small canvas dummies, 48,000 used blue work shirts layered on a platform, a floor covered in a skin of 750 copper pennies and honey. Often utilizing sound, found objects, and the spoken word, Anne's environments are sensory exploration of time, language, and memory. Early installations at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles and Musée d'Art Contemporain in Lyon, France, and here at the Hirschhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden solidified her place among the most impressive forces within the visual arts. In 1999, Anne represented the United States at the 48th Venice Biennale, and in 1991, in Sao Paulo Biennale as well. Among many honors, Anne has been the recipient of the MacArthur Fellowship, sort of genius award, Haynes Award, United States Artist Fellowship, National Endowment for the Arts Visual Arts Fellowship, Louis Comfort Tiffany Foundation Award, Skohegan Medal for Sculpture, and the Guggenheim Memorial Fellowship. Over the past 30 years, her works has appeared in exhibitions around the world, and in just past decade, her installations have been on view at the Pulitzer Foundation for the Arts in San Luis, the Guggenheim Museum in New York, Contemporary Art Museum in Kumanduto, Japan, Historische Museum in Stockholm, Masmoka in North Adams, and so on. We are so proud to have her work, Palimpsest, which is on view now in our permanent collection. Please help me now to welcome Anne Hamilton. Thank you, Melena, for that beautiful introduction. And I should thank all of you for actually coming in out of the beautiful weather to um, come inside the auditorium and join me tonight. Um, I'm not sure that I would have come in. Uh, <laughs> it's really nice out there. Um, maybe we could keep just a little light on the audience while I get started so I can see you. Um, 
as I was actually walking by the mall this afternoon, um, heading towards this incredible round building, which I still think about, how did this round building get built on the rectangular mall? Because it really is the anomalous piece of architecture uh, around this public space. And as I was walking across, I was imagining what fun it would be to do something in the whole length of that mall. And I think that we should um, graze sheep on the, on the mall. <laughs> And that, that that would be this incredible thing to have sheep grazing in front of the White House and between the memorial, and um, it would maybe help with public maintenance. So I don't know, I thought I would start with that, partly because I very much am thinking about animals and the occasion of the Palimpsest project being reinstalled. And I should say thank you, Evelyn. Really, the show looks beautiful, and it's wonderful to see it in this context and to see how carefully it's been taken care of. The museum, I have to say, takes much better care of things, I think, than the artists. But thinking about the, the project upstairs, um, hopefully some of you have seen it, but in the center of it is a, oops, we're supposed to be looking at this, um, is a vitrine that has two cabbages in it and a collection of snails. Um, and I, I've always been really attracted to snails because they're hard, shelled, but soft-bodied. Uh, and um, it made me think about, uh, like, why would a museum invite uh, which is dedicated to preserving, uh, protecting things from light and preserving things, invite a species in who loves to devour cellulose. Uh, and um, one of the things I was thinking about is the snails here, and I don't have video of this, but I'm actually hoping that we can shoot some video of the path the snails take across the wet glass when the cabbages are misted. And that they, you see when the pad of their foot um, which attaches them to the side of the glass, you see touch, something's made visible to you which is usually not visible, that whenever we two things touch, the space of that is obviously dark. It's a felt and reciprocal experience, but not necessarily a visual one. And yet when the snails crawl across the glass in the vitrine, a little bit maybe like my finger here in this video, which is erasing and absorbing and then rewriting the alphabet, Bed. It's uh, something that is invisible is made visible, and what is uh, uh, tactile is made um, present to you in a different form. And I wanted to kind of take that as a lead or a way to think about uh, why would they be present here, and then a question that has haunted me the last couple of months from several friends, which has been posed as, and why read to pigeons? So why read to pigeons? Um, why train the pigeons first in a barn in Ohio to respond to the sound of a school bell? And this is a little bit of video footage from their training uh, last fall. You can see at this point they were not very cooperative. They're not going into their cage. And then why ship these, or mail these, I should say, to New York City, Ohio-trained um, pigeons, where they arrived in these containers overnight. 
and um, bring them to be read to in the context of the armory. So the path to, um, I guess, maybe address this question of why read to pigeons is one that actually starts here. And uh, this is one of the first projects I did actually in graduate school. You can see there's no gray hair in these pictures. Um, but it's a piece that um, kind of shows itself back to me now from the perspective or place where I am and thinking about animal-human relations. And that initially I started thinking about um, the form of attention that occurs when one is in camouflage or one is invisible. Obviously, I'm not in a context of being made invisible in this suit of toothpicks. I'm exposed. But what form of attention occurs when you can, when you are hidden or when you are blocked from seeing and that that's a material condition. And I think it's partly that that is um, an address to thinking about the presence of the animal and the forms of attention it brings us to. When you um, touch an animal, they say that if you have a cat or a dog or a bird, that it lowers your bread blood pressure immediately. And I think about um, the little bit I know about neurobiology, about how much of uh, the capacity and physical mass of our brains is actually dedicated to our hand and, to, and the complexity of that extension of touch. And when you, when you cannot be seen and you cannot see, then perhaps you listen differently. And that, that is uh, why we're mostly engaged with, I think, gesture and speech. How is it that we make or cultivate a place to be quiet and to listen? And that in the extension of vision or touch to animals, perhaps it offers us one of those experiences. So, um, it began really with the muteness of the toothpick suit. But then I think my um, interest in tie to the animal really began very early to also be in thinking about the sound that is non-linguistic and the call of the animal. Um, and so these are two, one's an early video of the effort of come to, coming to speech the preparation in the interior to do that. And this is actually a taxidermied bird that is animated really by the motion of the uh, miniature camera. I found out last week when I was, or two weeks ago when I was in the Met, I went on a tour of the musical instrument um, collection. And the um, person giving the tour had this book, I think you can see it, it's bright enough with her, that is um, from a period where, in fact, maybe we learned to speak. Maybe birds had something to do with us coming to speech, but there was a point when well, there was a lot of time dedicated to training birds to sing to particular compositions. And there's a particular small recorder that has a very high pitch that was used and people dedicated a lot of time to training the birds to sing these musical compositions. I would like to do that piece also. So 
So maybe the sheep on the mall and training a bird um, to a particular contemporary composition. But um, it was in Japan that I found this really incredible guidebook, which is about how to hear the sound of a bird and then perhaps mimic its sound. So through the motion of the hand, which reads the barcode at the side of the page, the hand animates the sound of the bird. And it's in thinking about that relation that I came to make this, um, I think, rather odd project in Kumamoto, Japan, a number of years ago in which we made recordings of the local birds and uh, asked people to step up on these tables that had uh, old tube radios on them and kimonos underneath the plastic and to accompany the sort of teaching CD, which you can hear here. <laughs> I think this is the mayor of Kumamoto. And everyone said, Anne, nobody will do this. Well, it was actually kind of surprising how many people um, might be very afraid to come to, to speak in public or to occupy this place. But something about um, assuming the voice of the animal perhaps made a different, um, I don't know, different permission, I guess is the word. Uh, and then a number of years later, I, um, a very long-term conversation with Steve Oliver resulted in this um, structure in Geyserville, California, which is a 70-foot built-in, cast-in-place concrete tower, which I thought of as a vocal cord for the ranch, uh, which is the property where it's sited. And um, this is a photograph of it. It's a double helical staircase. And um, I thought about it as a place to call really to the landscape. So it sits in a draw on the land and then it rises to meet the horizon of the trees. And it's from that place that you can really call into the landscape. And so that, um, in this case, musical call of one of Meredith Monk's um, performers, vocalists, Maybe I should take time to show you this whole video, but um, I'm thinking about in the work in some ways trying to find some relationship between what happens when you extend your hand to touch and the reciprocity of that and the way that this vocal call extends and amplifies that into the landscape. Um, This is something I don't actually really have time to go into, but I just wanted to show you a little bit of how this structure works so that there's one staircase with performers. This is um, the Pacific Mozart Ensemble working with Meredith, and it's a piece called The Songs of Ascension. And you hear the shruti that calls from the bottom. And so the instruments we have made, they do mimic in so many ways 
the animal call for me. And this is work that um, I think will continue to come forward. But to stay on the trajectory of the animal in the work, I'm going to um, kind of cut that short. And uh, I wanted to really start with thinking about um, how uh, people are also tool makers. And although there's been a lot in the newspaper recently about how crows make tools and a lot of documentation and thinking about animal, the different animal species that are uh, we might call higher order that make tools, that we are the first tool makers. And that the, but the finger is, and the stylus that comes from it, and maybe the fingernail is the most effective tool that we have. And so it's um, I think trying to find some commonality in the toolmaker, the human is the toolmaker, and to think about us as animal selves in relationship to uh, quadrupeds and our avian sort of um, company. Oops, that's supposed to have sound. Um, and so it, thinking about the stylus as one of the first tools that we have in our, hand, in our hands and the first form of um, inscribing landscape or space or obviously a piece of paper, I also started to pay attention to the actual sound of that writing and that inscription and thinking about that material form as maybe having some link to the non-linguistic sound of the animal calling and how primary a sound that is. But my first hand is really a sewing hand, as Milena said in the introduction, and the uh, appearing and disappearing, the in and out, the up and down of the red thread, its incessant horizontality is, for me, very related to acts of writing and that silent act of the tool of the stylus that is sounded through the work. And this too is a, is a form of attention, just as I think petting the animal um, brings you to attention to that moment and that, ex that reciprocal exchange. There's something about these repetitive processes. I, I think that they also release a kind of chemical that uh, I release a serotonin, which is the same chemical that is in um, pharmaceuticals that treat depression and that when your both hands are uh, involved in a repetitive activity as it, like knitting which I think I have a slide of and sewing that it releases a kind of calm and a form of attention that to me has an analogy to the extension of touch to the animal but animals actually in the work not just thinking about one's animal self, but being an animal in the work started, as I said, with a piece in some ways upstairs. The um, snails crawling across the glass who would eat cellulose. And they're surrounded by a landscape of handwritten notes. So the handwriting comes forward as a landscape that surrounds the animal. So our 
need and our ability really to language our experience. And in this case, these are all memories that are either copied from existing published texts or they're written by friends and family um, from their own personal memories. And they're printed on yellowing newsprint, which is, I know, full of acid and will in time disintegrate. Um, but it's at this moment protected from the damage that the snails, in fact, would um, cause if they got out of the floor, out of the vitrine, and crawled across the floors and would poke holes and burn holes in the actual uh, writing. So the relationship between preservation on one hand and how we preserve our, our ideas in writing uh, personally and culturally and then this kind of entropy of the animal is, uh, sit in juxtaposition here and um, give each other really meaning through that relation. I should tell you that um, the best part sometimes is the behind the scenes, and I don't have photographs of this, but preparing this piece, we had, uh, I had a lot of snails in my studio. I was living in California at the time, and I would put uh, a line of um, yellow cornmeal down the middle of the studio, and the snails were free in the studio, um, eating holes through things. And about three in the morning, they would, you know, it was really quiet outside. You could hear them crawling to the line of cornmeal and then like horses in a trough lining up and eating. And um, that's the part of the really interesting part of coming to make work that you never get to see in the, in the museum. Um, snails are also hermaphrodites and they have, the process is very elaborate and very interesting for, I don't know if any of that will be going on in the museum, but perhaps. And then thinking about the relationship of, um, you know, and we don't cross often, we don't cross a space uh, with language with an animal, but we do communicate. And um, what happens when one's human gaze is returned by that of an animal? And this is a project that I did at Cap Street called um, Privations and Excesses, in which I borrowed three sheep from Steve Oliver, with whom I actually later built the tower. So the tower comes as a consequence of the sheep who or the animals who in a well in Orvieto, which was built so that during um, times of medieval siege, the animals could get water but not have to turn around. Well, this is actually how work happens. It's the connection between those things. Um, it started here. Uh, this is Jesse. I think the first sheep were called Merzi and Dozy. <laughs> what is that, 1942, I think, uh, song. And here they lived in a garage called Cap Street Project. It was the actually opening project of this space that had once occupied a David Ireland house um, in the Mission District of San Francisco. And I was interested in how the animals look out through this grid and they look out to the display of the budget that is actually laid into a bed of honey on the floor in this garage. So 800,000 pennies are laid into a, the product of a human economy are laid into the product of an animal economy. And it is the humans and the witness and the, the human and the sheep that together uh, gaze out across that through the open door of the garage. <coughs> 
and we the making is really very much like the hive in the sense that uh, it's collective it carries the hand of many many people that are involved in it and although there's a system for laying everything down it's as it takes the rhythm of each person's gesture that the whole field of the copper actually accrues its animation um, and then th and thinking about how that material is a uh, which is the mineral and the really the, the result of the economy the hive is uh, oceanic landscape that runs to the edges of that building was it, um, somewhat of an influence as I came to make this project uh, at the Dia Foundation and it is a floor that is sculpted slightly underfoot so that you um, feel a gentle shift of the terrain but it's covered in a large carpet that has been stitched out of the tail hair of horses and so that material which holds the cellular memory of the interior of the animal and is then, um, you know, a memory material, creates the landscape across which you walk to a small table where there's a person, a single figure in the middle of that landscape who is reading silently. And the material surround makes a context for the way that active reading unfolds, which is with a hot stylus, so that the printed uh, word, um, yeah, there's a reading that actually proceeds at the motion of the hand with this hot stylus which burns the words away they become smoke and in the time the several months that the installation was up the smoke is reabsorbed into the material and for me that transformation is really in many ways one of the is the completion of the work this piece is called Tropos, and um, it is really comes from um, thinking about the word tropisms, or which comes from Natalie Sirote, and thinking about how a plant grows towards light, or what is the impulse to actually move from silence into speech and to be motivated to sort of project. Um, there was also an oral element which was recorded with uh, Tom Curlew, an actor who had asphagia, so the difficulty of articulating, of, of reading a text and actually being able to say the words one read um, traveled around the perimeter windows of this space. Um, but it, all of, some of those details stray from the trajectory of the animal in the work. And um, I think it was after that in time, but thinking about the um, completely immersive landscape of the work that this project happened at the Henry Art Museum in Seattle and it trying to think, do I have the, it's the wrong order. Yes, Dia was after, but the birds maybe. Um, so first the horse, first the birds, then the horse. Uh, but in this project at the Henry, um, I was given the entire um, museum to work in and uh, we had 300 free-flying canaries that um, were um, let, um, it really became their space. This is, I don't actually have pictures of the first time I used the canaries with the wax heads and the 
um, smoke-licked walls or windows. That happened at the Carnegie International. But um, it was expanded in this piece at the Henry. And here's the landscape in which the animals um, lived. So the walls were all soot-licked with the um, carbon that came off the ends of two um, tapered candles. And in the, the floor was covered in metal tags that sounded as you walked across them. And there you can see a sound of that and you can get a sense of the, the marks of consumption in the smoke and the landscape they make. And the references the whole architecture makes to a small natural history museum. And um, it as a place of storage and collection of things that were once alive. But here the, the canaries had their hay and um, so I think that what happened is that when you walked in, you sensed that it was not your space, but it was their space. And that with the animals overhead or gathered at the back where there were the wax heads that were um, unlike the Carnegie project, um, they were not melting. But, um, it makes you pay attention differently. You, you pay attention to how you walk, you pay attention to how you listen, and I think if it does anything, maybe it suspends your sense of time. Uh, the theater director, Ann Bogart, said to me in a conversation last year that maybe one of the most radical things an artist can do at this moment in time is reset or recalibrate how we think about time and to make a, a condition in which we, um, we can just dwell within it. And that's something I thought a lot about in relationship to the animal and in relationship to the, the project, the armory, that is really what I wanted to dwell on today. But the, the birds recur and, um, and the birds, um, like the, the canaries were silent, but sometimes the birds really have their own call. And this is a project I did in Lyon, France with um, peacocks. And there were five peacocks that lived under an orange silk cloth that raised and lowered mechanically. It was raised like this, and then on springs it would just drop. And the orange silk, which is actually a consequence of an animal economy, would drop and make animate and present the air in the space. And so below were the birds, and then above, as you see in the hole through the cloth, was a figure, and above that, an audio piece between a, a student and a teacher, um, a kind of choral lesson. The figure was pulling a inked uh, ribbon up through the floor, so it passed through the under to the above and wound on the hand and made um, the fist size cloth that the birds that were passed below and the birds really um, tended to rest in and stay in. And they were supposed to stay on their perches, but they ended up in these pieces. And it's partly thinking about the hand as a loom and like this first instrument that every finger is like a warp on the loom and the typewriter ribbon which carries the impression of language is the thing that makes the negative space of the hand. Um, the thing I wanted to say about the silk cloth, and maybe you all know this, but that in order for a piece of silk to be woven, the silkworms and their, they spin 
then they, the larvae, at the larva stage, they're boiled alive in order for us to have a continuous thread. And so every piece of silk is actually a sacrificial cloth. But there's, and I think that's something that maybe you feel when you wear the silk, like that you're wearing the animal, even though in many ways we're very far removed from those narratives. Um, and the presence of the animal in this location in Vana, Sweden, uh, which is about an hour and a half from the Copenhagen airport, had, were not literally in the piece, but they had a large influence on my thinking about it. That I was working in uh, this barn, and it was a former um, storage place for grain, and in many ways then was the bank for this very, very old estate, which is um, part of the gentry in Sweden, and um, it was listening to the animal's call in the morning that made me bring the voice into the central, to become a central figure in the work. Uh, I don't know if I have a recording of this here. So there were five spinning um, Leslie speakers that went up and down through five material fl floors of the barn. And at one point in this, you can actually hear the cow's call. And so the piece originated in um, spending time with this very young man who actually was one of the regular uh, farmhands who milked the cows. And when he had first come to uh, work at Vanus, he did not he did not speak. He came from a traumatic family situation. And it was through working with the animals that he, in fact, um, was return to his own voice and so the sound of the cows you hear live in through the open windows in this barn and you also hear it recorded through the traveling Leslie speakers um, on the second floor they um, they're turning and spinning as a figure of sound crosses with your own spinning or turning if you step onto a disc that is set into the floor and is just fast enough to be a dare, but not throw you across the room. And to think about these as two um, reciprocal forms, really, of cognition, that how we think when we're in motion and how we think when we're speaking and how we think when we're listening are different forms of attention. Uh, so there was reading and singing and the animals um, in that piece. And then kind of moving forward quickly uh, to a project a couple of years ago that was in the rotunda at the Guggenheim. There are no live animals in this work and there was no necessarily influence of that on this piece, but thinking about how to make animate this space of collection was a lot behind um, the central figure uh, that animated this work. So uh, the exhibition was uh, curated, it's a, it's a, it was a large group show and it was um, looking at the influence of Asian thought in translation on American artists up to the age of the internet and I was asked to respond to some of that history and to the work and so I guess in true um, or in the spirit of the Buddhist um, tenets that informed much of this work I was thinking about how can you make something that is alive that is everywhere and nowhere at the same time and so I 
decided to use the silence of the book, which you see here, and the sound of the bell um, to hand off to each other as they took form and found form as they met the ramp of the Guggenheim. So you can see there's a, a bent tube that goes down and follows the eccentric radius of that of the center of the space, and it starts at the top. And um, here we go. The this these two bells and this piece of wire and the the silk cloth. by gravity makes its way down the center of the atrium. And that sound calls your attention from the walls to the center in an irregular um, occurrence. And what was interesting to me partly was how this which is nothing, but it's the four pieces of torn silk cloth and this bell in motion became alive. And it's in that motion. I would arrive, um, I guess I have to tell one story. I'm, I, is that, um, that made me realize that maybe we were really very blessed that um, the safety wore through at one point on the bell and one of the bells fell from its suspension out in the space of the atrium. And it fell into someone's pocket. And so I knew that maybe we were doing the real, something that we were supposed to be doing, but how lucky we were, obviously, that that was the consequence. But um, also, uh, it then started a conversation that I had with some of the guards and the people who attended this, Audra, who ran it, in that this thing behaved differently every time it went down. You know, like, let's see. I think I have a picture here where it stops. No. Um, maybe I've gotten out of order. At the very bottom, it knocks the book weight off. And, uh, but it doesn't always do that. Sometimes it would slow. And it was like making a piece that in some ways never repeated itself, but which generated a lot of uh, stories because the guards would describe to me like they named it and they said, you know, this way today it behaved like this and yesterday it was like that. And so it's a piece in some ways that takes the weather and the weather is always changing. And, um, and I think that's been a lot behind my thinking about making work in museums and in public spaces. Like how does something uh, outside of having a live presence of an animal, how does something become alive to your experience? And then what kind of thinking do we do when we are in motion? And what is the kind of stream of consciousness of that? As you can see, it doesn't always go down. Uh, these are the book weights, which are made of recombining multiple texts and was in some ways for me an embodiment of thinking about how we are influenced um, by so many different uh, 
forms of information and all of the print culture and that we read um, and that it's very hard to account for any singular thing falling out of that and then generating a whole train of thought which was partly a response to thinking about translation. These are the images of the book weights which were in some ways I think of as um, little portraits of the hands that made them. And um, I think I maybe need to skip forward because I'm describing these all in more length than I thought I would be. But um, it was um, in this next piece that I really um, thought about how the gesture of the hand which animated and made this piece at the Guggenheim Live came forward as something that communicates at a distance that is greater than the ability really of the voice to call. And to think about that as animating the space of the Pulitzer in St. Louis in which there um, is a history in a city of um, internal abandonment. And so how does this building which sits somewhat isolated where it is, certainly there's a lot of emptiness around it, then call and meet its neighbors. And um, as you can see here, it's a, it's a beautiful Tadeo Ando space. Uh, if you drove by, you would not know what goes on necessarily in that space. You wouldn't necessarily know that it was a foundation. And um, it's, a, it's a longer discussion, but it took me a long time to figure out how to bring that kind of animation that I thought about with the Guggenheim forward into this space. And it's that I had to first understand the space and what it needed. And it's in understanding that in some ways it's a container for light, and that light is the figure that animates it, just as the voice animated the barn. And as the light changes in the building, it refigures that space through the day. The other thing is that there's a very central, permanently um, placed piece of Ellsworth Kelly's that has this relationship between above and a below, blue-black. And that is at the end of the main gallery. And so before I could read to the pigeons, I had first to read to this sculpture painting piece. And um, I had to find a way to do that. And the route to do that was actually not through the pigeons, but through the animal. And that I was in um, the airport where they sell Mexican jumping beans along with gum and water. And I, when I saw, is this, let's see, let me play this again, see if you can hear it. No. When I saw the Mexican jumping beans, I thought, they're just like the Tadeo Ando building, that they respond to light and warmth. And when the jumping beans are warmed, as they were in the piece on this steel table that sat in the sun and got warmer during the day, then the insects, which are inside these shells, started to move. And so the sound of their movement was the audio that was um, in part of the audio landscape that projected through the several galleries of the Pulitzer Foundation. Um, and like blue-black, there's above and below, and so what is live above is no longer alive below. And um, I was thinking about what is it that arrives at a distance to animate this really sealed space other than the light that occurs and recurs every day. And so 
um, one of the central pieces of this is the delivery of a newspaper that arrives into the middle of these clapping hands. And every week we made a newspaper. Um, it brings the far away near at hand and it followed a concordance structure that organizing the text along a spine of words and was used actually as the script um, to be improvised and read to Ellsworth Kelly's Blue Black. I'm sure this is not something that Ellsworth perhaps imagined um, would ever happen, but here you can see it at the far end of the space. And so um, there was a table that was close at hand and it was miked. And so if you took a newspaper and read to the painting, um, it also played the piano that was in the gallery behind it. And so the voice was translated into a form of handless playing behind uh, that wall. And so you heard it. And so the translation of voice into another form of sound occurred in that abstraction. And then as the, the light actually grew dark in the galleries, the natural light, the um, spinning projections that were on the ladders that you can see here in the main space, you started to be able to, they were, the video that they were projecting was made visible. And so over the course of the day, you, uh, the piece changed, as did the audio. And I'm just going to play a little section of that. The video was actually made from uh, looking at the newspaper. And so it's a collage of the gesture of reading uh, the New York Times, thinking about the signaling of the hand and the mouth falling from silence, opening from silence into speech. And that circles with this um, music that I collaborated with Shiroki Adagari on. Um, and we made a 24 uh, channel sound system that turned the Pulitzer actually into a kind of instrument. And I just wanted to show you, I, I guess, I feel like I'm being long-winded today, but to say that, that it's the same form of attention. There's something about having a camera in my hand that is like the stylus of a pencil that allows me to see differently and to kind of fall into time, which is maybe what is conveyed here. And um, it's in the motion. It's in kind of finding the motion. I think we, we perceive through a, a moving body. This is actually how these works are made. This is a single chip surveillance camera that they no longer make. And I'm coddling and babying the few that I still have. But you can see that what it does is it tactilizes um, sight. At least that's how I'm describing it at the moment. Um, and uh, it was the paper that we used actually to read, as you see here, to Blue Black. And we invited other people to come and join us. And we read through these handheld microphones. So as you read, you actually felt the vibration of your voice in this instrument. Um, and I think what I'm going to do is skip through this very quickly, because I want to get to the armory. 
but um, some related projects that think about how touch comes forward in the form of a newspaper. And these are images from a collaboration uh, at Factory Direct in Pittsburgh with the Bear uh, Material Sciences and Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, which then circulated as a newspaper. Um, to get to the event of a thread, and um, hopefully we can, I can finish with this and take questions. So thinking a lot about that motion and about the animal and the human crossing uh, led to making this piece. The event of a thread comes from a statement by Annie Albers, who is writing that all textiles, all crossings are the event of a thread, and it's um, a tactile um, intersection. And I started thinking about how to make for this quite enormous space at the Park Avenue Armory, uh, which sits between Park and Lexington and um, houses an enormous drill hall. How do you make um, how do you make a piece that allows uh, the sociability of being both alone and together? And to think about how you cross with it is partly the weaving of it, just as you might cross with a translated piece of text and a whole new understanding or experience falls out of that silent reading. Um, first, I had to walk it into my body. That's how all projects start. Uh, you know, simultaneously um, terrified of the scale of this space, thinking that this is a whole city block and loving every minute of it. Uh, it uh, I began by thinking a lot about the history of that, the Arm Park Avenue Armory as a civic space and the multiple forms of public gathering that have happened there from the drills to the welcoming of Queen Elizabeth to state funerals to movies to early radio plays, that it was this huge space of congregation. And, and how might I make a place where that made a condition for, uh, I guess this, again, this state of being alone together. So I realized early on that um, with the height of this armory, which is 70 feet at the mid midpoint, that there's a, a structure to pay attention to and to use to, to make the piece. And that one way of falling into attention and suspending one's time is when one's weight is taken. And a swing is a natural thing to take one's weight. And maybe perhaps it's better than a bed. Uh, so uh, this is one of our really early first tests. And when we tested that swing, I'll just play that video again, I realized that when you swing on a pendulum that is from 70 feet, it's nothing like the swing you know as a kid. It's a little, you're low on the pendulum, and so it's more of a back and forth than an up and down. And so it's like, it holds this contradiction of being fast and slow at the same time. And uh, someone described it to me as being a little bit like the magic carpet. Like you're, you're really like this more than this. Um, and then that, thinking about that experience and how people might have that very individual uh, 
immersion, but have it together, started to structure the way that the swings and a giant white silk silk cloth was suspended in the middle, and um, how those then would meet the scale of the armory. Uh, so here. Here you see a little video from the upper balcony. Actually a kind of quiet moment in there. And the cloth is actually one of the things that um, I wanted to explain is how everything is connected so that the cloth is actually um, counterweighted at the end of a rope. These are the ropes that um, tie the swings to the cloth and the swings actually hold the cloth in place. So you can see as they're going up and down that they're responding to the movement of the swings. And I have a little diagram here. This is actually a video that I found on YouTube. <laughs> because I have not edited my video yet. <laughs> But it had a different soundtrack. It had a pop music song. And I, so I've put my own sound on it, but it's really a, a kind of fantastic little synopsis of the piece. And I'm going to go through the parts. Uh, so here you can see the giant cloth and that the weather and the motion of the cloth is created and is a consequence of anyone that is on the swing. So every motion you make registers and affects the whole. And that's the root of weaving in my own work is that you need each part to become the larger field of cloth, but the, the single part retains its individual thread identity. Um, and it was large and it was uh, engulfing and you could watch people get on the swings and be taken by surprise a little bit like oh it's not what I thought and then begin to smile which of course made me very happy um, and I think partly what was happening, and, and I'm still learning obviously from this piece, is that as you were swinging, it didn't matter how high um, you would swing if somebody pushed you, but that the motion of the cloth seemed to keep uh, the rhythm of a heartbeat. Even as it got busier and busier and busier towards the end of the, the show and more people came, it, it maintained that sort of calm and the, the space of the army was large enough to absorb more and more people as they came in. It obviously changed and affected the experience in there. Here you can see it in a, in a more empty space. But one of the things that um, I don't know if I've made clear is, and I, I'm trying to get to my diagram is that maybe you can see in here that their swings are on either side. And so they, there's a, th a thread that comes off the swing, connects up 
to a pulley, down to the cloth, and then across to the other side. So, so if you're swinging on one side, and I, I, I'm sure I have the diagram in here somewhere, that if you're swinging this way and both swings are together, the cloth behaves one way. And if the two people across joint swings, oops, are swinging opposite, the raise and the lower of it is a little bit different. thing is that the swings are actually tied and make um, the ropes that tie to the swings make their own sound. So that what you're hearing is, and I think I have a video of it in here, is the accordion that it pulled open and closed. Here they are. So kind of like the project at the um, Guggenheim, it's very low tech. You know, it is ropes and pulleys and everything is materially present to you. So the frequency of this or of the telephone bells that were tied to the ropes that were tied to the swings, those were determined by, and the composition and weather of that by everyone in there. So here, here's my diagrams. I had them out of order to my speaking, which is often the case. Um, and then you get a sense of the whole web of that. And you know, partly uh, in thinking about this as a civic space, I was thinking a lot about we, and that we are in such an us-them uh, moment in so many ways politically. We continue to be in that place, and so how does this project, in fact, demonstrate the mutuality of the we in this very kind of pleasurable, tangible, but concrete way? And so that was really um, why it was really important also that the structure of the swing to the cloth is as it was. And here's that diagram that we made as we tried to explain it to ourselves. But one thing that we couldn't have anticipated is that the center of the room, which I knew would be interesting under the cloth because it's both an edge and a center, became a kind of um, beach scene. And that people would take the newspaper that we made that was at the entrance and that they would carry that to the center and that they would lay down on the ground. And while I was very worried about people being hit by swings, and I think before the opening, the last thing I was doing was calling my brother to check on my liability insurance. Um, my engineer, who's so great, Marty Chaffin, kept saying, people know how to cross the street in traffic. This is like traffic. It will be fine. Um, but there was this quiet moment in the median, I guess you could say, and that's where you could look up at the curtain and the cloth. And people fell asleep and took naps and um, also became, I think, in some ways strangely intimate with a total stranger uh, as it became more and more crowded. And the injuries we had were not from the swings, but from the splinters in the floor. And I wanted to make um, a place that everyone could be. I didn't know that this would necessarily become that in the middle. I, we had 42 swings, which is just uh, not in a symbolic number, but important um, only because it fit the scale of the space. That's how many we could fit in. Um, and then there were benches around the perimeter. 
and there were so there's plenty of places to sit in and there was also um, you could go up into the balcony on the sides um, but bracketing this kind of field of motion and the interactivity of that and the mutuality and reciprocity of its system uh, were two much more solitary activities at one end as you entered there were two readers reading to a pigeon so at last we come to the pigeons and uh, at the other end there was a writer who was solitary and so at this table there were two concordance scrolls following the structure I had used at the Pulitzer Foundation and the readers were the actors and community from City Company and Bogart founded. Uh, and we worked together on how the reading would occur and how one's reading might change if one is reading to a pigeon and not to a person. So the um, address is really to the bird and not to the space. And there were 42 pigeons, one for each. And as you saw earlier, they were trained in Ohio. They spent the day in wood cages at the table. This is the day, actually, one of them didn't come back and at the, when we flew them at the end of the day. And so it sat all day with the rest of the flock in the middle of the installation or project. And there were hundreds of people walking around. And it was like, a, stayed there like a sentinel. Uh, they would squabble at times, but I think they became um, calmed and very uh, responsive to the kind of continuous litanous reading voice that was the presence of the two readers. And they were um, reading not only to the pigeons, but improvising with each other. So here you can see um, the way the scroll would move across and accumulate a little bit on the table. And so time accreted quite literally in its roles. And we started out reading concordances made from Aristotle's book De Anima, which starts out talking about the, the common sense that all species share is touch. And so that became one of the central spines of the concordance and also of this process of reading. And then we move forward. Um, Darwin's um, book on the expression of emotions in man and animal. And in it, again, um, this kind of exploration of the gaze between the um, biped and the quadruped. Um, and then um, on through, you can see these are Emerson and William James. Um, it was really interesting to me that this book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, which are an accounting of interior life, in fact, were called from newspaper accounts of people's in experiences. And um, it's really William James's essay on stream of consciousness that uh, had an influence on the development of this piece and thinking about what's being made in the work is the... Um, the motion that it in some ways invites or sets your body into. Uh, we finished with Lewis Hyde's The Gift. And um, I can't actually answer the question why read to pigeons, except that they make you pay attention differently. And um, 
something happens that you can't name. And I think that that's what all art is actually trying to do, is to cultivate a form of attention for something that you can't name, but, what just, but which just is. Uh, and so, the text is not being read straight, it's actually being improvised across the, the sp concordance of the spine. So that becomes one of the threads of the work. So it has, the act of reading isn't really verbatim, it's like a, sc a score that allows this act with the bird to happen. Um, the kids were really curious. It's like you might not pay attention to the pigeons outside, but once they're sitting on that table, they um, invite a different form of scrutiny and attention. And the reason that you see the microphones at the table is because there was a live transmission of the reading within the space via um, radio. There, was, uh, there were two stations, one for each voice, and they were transmitted to small uh, radio receivers that were housed in these paper bags. And their paper bags distributed around the space so that in fact it wasn't a system that was broadcast um, through the space, but it was something that you carried in hand. And so these bags, which might be suspicious, in some ways became these objects of uh, affection, really, and tenderness. Um, you might recognize Peter there, yes. <laughs> And I think it's in this that there's the intimacy of being read to, but you're in a public space. Uh, there was a little girl that's like, Mommy, can I take home the man in the bag? <laughs> uh, just a little diagram of how the whole piece was set out as a spine. And then at the far end, and I think the whole piece has actually been, was made for the experience of the person, the writer, sitting at the table. And at the far end, what we did was we opened up a window to Lexington Avenue. This building, which um, uh, has never had a view into its interior from the street, for the first time had an interior, and the writer who sat at this table actually had a view out to Lexington Avenue at the same time that through the mirror that is above their table, they had a view back to what was behind them. And so the placement of language at the center of what is behind in time and the motion in relationship to the street is really, um, I think for me, the main event and crossing of the project. I ask people to write letters to um, emotions or places far away, so or to qualities. So. Um, um, a friend wrote, dear lightness, dear far, and um, the intimacy of that writing and that, I think, um, maybe the self-consciousness of writing, the reflectivity of writing silently but in a public space, a letter that would be sent to far away. Um, placed a kind of private subjectivity in the middle of this in the middle of this mass gathering. Here you can see the view out. Um, I have to admit that I still have not figured out where to send the letters. I have two ten-year-old consultants who are poets 
and they um, they <laughs> they said, well, if the letter is addressed to Dear Deep, then you should put it as send it to as deep as possible. But they're still um, home, and I'm not sure yet if it's important that they go somewhere. So that lingers is a question that will no longer, no doubt, influence the next project. Uh, this gives you a sense of the mirror and how it rotated. And then the, the day completed itself um, with the releasing of the pigeons and a song. So that here's what it began to look like as the light faded and it grew dark. And at that point, the lights in the piece themselves changed and the cloth was no longer lit. And on the Juliet balcony, which is on the Lexington side of the space, a singer, every night a different singer, I think this is Bora Yoon or Katie Geisinger came and sang a score that was written by David Lang that is a, um, a plain song written to the pigeons and it comes from the concordance text and it has the word thread in it, it so it, it actually completes the day and connects back through the elements of the piece abstractly and there's just a little section of this And so the room that had been full of motion then stopped and was quiet. And in the interest of time, I'll keep moving here. Um, this was the score that was printed in the newspaper that you had access to when you entered. And live, each song was cut on a record, that, uh, a record lathe that was placed in front of the Lexington Avenue window. And those records, there was one cut of every singer every day. Uh, and the blue thread that is cut off of the record is perhaps one of the threads of the piece. Uh, and this happened at, after this happened, the pigeons were released to flight. And by about 10 days or two weeks into it, the pigeons found their way back to the cage where they spent the night overhead, and they, which was located over the reader or the writer. By the end of the, the project, word was out that at the end of the day, the pigeons would fly. And so I always had a lot, we had a lot of helpers that were anxious and um, to watch them. And so the silence that actually kind of followed this and the darkness is, um, I think for me, really central to the, the counterpoint to the motion that was its daytime life. Um, the clock at the end of the armory does not actually work. It's always the same time. Although each day was different. And what you see up in the seats in the balcony at the far end are these lights. And each light is over a record player. And the records play back the records that are recorded of the song. So at the beginning of the day, a chorus accumulates. So it's um, each day there's one more record that is added to the chorus at the end. And those play um, back. And I think in many ways, for me, the construction of the chorus in 
in time through these recordings uh, of the individual singers is the cloth that is woven um, of this piece. I'm just going to show you some pictures. I, I know that I've gone over time, so I'm not going to show you the last um, projects, but uh, or the most recent one, but just some pictures of people being in the space. Uh, a friend of mine, Sarah Oppenheimer, who uh, is a really amazing artist, um, said to me, she said, I went with my brother and we were there for three hours. And there was this way that it invited or allowed you to stay for a really long time. Um, the newspaper did not have a lot of um, material in it. It had images from the archive. And inside it had small, um, kind of like poetic sections that really described the phenomena of a pendulum, described pigeon navigation, that talked about the history of weaving and cloth. And so in it were, were um, short narratives that were meant to actually add to maybe how you might respond to the piece, but to not actually explain it in any way. And that it's really your experience crossing with it that makes the event of the thread. These are just some of those. And some of the images, and I realized as we selected from the archive that everything that I selected from the archive, in fact, is part of the project. This is a letter being written, the voice calling, the uniforms that we made for the readers, etc and then the flag, which is the white flag that sits in the civic space in the center of the armory. So, thank you. Any questions? Uh, so now you know why I read to the pigeons? No. <laughs> yes. Uh, thank you for such a wonderful presentation. I have a question about a particular piece, the name of which I believe is called Murmurization, but I could be wrong with that. It's in Teardrop Park in Battery Park City. Oh, mm -hmm. the, the park in Teardrop, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about, we've seen a lot of stuff where you're weaving many different elements together. Right. And how you came upon this piece where it, I believe it's just a sound recording without a visual. Ah, uh, the, um, that, it does, it has a plaque, doesn't it, in the park, so it names it. That's interesting, I forgot about that. So the park, Teardrop Park, was a collaboration with Michael Van Valkenburg. And so Michael Marcel, my husband and I, worked with Michael uh, and Matthew Obiansky and the whole team of his office from the very beginning of that park through to the end. But, but so in some ways for us, our contribution to that process is not a singular thing, but it's the landscape of conversation that actually formed that. And we started out wanting to make a big dirt pile in the middle of New York City, because we were thinking about there's no place wild. You know, everything is figured out, or it's, it's, it's been engineered for our safety, but not necessarily our experience. And um, obviously it's not a giant dirt pile in the middle of New York City, but um, our thinking about how to work with the bluestone that came from upstate New York and how to kind of 
um, set it into the park so it would express something of like a geological force. That was something we worked on for several years. And then we worked with Ben Rubin, who actually happens to be in this picture. How would I know you would ask that question? Um, who's a, a, an artist friend. Um, he, we did the recordings uh, with him that then sit in the... Um, uh, the really the water system, the drainage system that is part of the park. And so we wanted to talk about the history of what is underneath that land, which is the history of water. And so that's what that piece is. If I had my preference, I would not have the plaque and I would not name it or call it anything. Like it should just be there to be found. Yeah. So I guess this is going on YouTube now, right? No. <laughs> um, anybody else? Yes. Um, I, oh. I don't actually have a question, but I just wanted to tell you about my experience seeing the, uh, the piece in New York. And that was, and I didn't have an image that showed anyone doing this, but I was there right when, at a day when, right when it opened, and there weren't there very, that very many people there. So that the Thank you. Um, I don't think I showed it, but there's a video of some a man standing kind of in the curtain is coming around him that someone sent me, and his eyes are his eyes are shut, and the cloth is just you know doing this, and he's kind of standing in it. And um, I think that that quality of being completely interior but also having the exteriority of language and our ability to describe that experience, that is kind of at the heart of all the work. And I think that has to do also with the presence of the animals. Like somehow we can join them, we can be with them, but we can never be them. And so the, the tension of those two uh, emotional or psychological um, positions in some ways, that, that actually structures the work. And, um, you know, I'm not so articulate about that at the beginning because you, as you make work, you move from hunches. You know, you kind of have a, an idea about the swing taking one's weight. But it, like the whole first, like I would say several weeks in that period that you were there, we were learning so much from what it was. And maybe just not so much in response to your question, but I wanted to make the comment that, that what's been really interesting for me about this work and uh, maybe a little bit of this tiny little bit of this happened in Dia uh, the, in the horse hair is that some people would come in and like want to roll around on the hair and we're like 
Um, and some people were totally like, uh, you know, I don't want to walk in here. And um, I think there some people did spend a, long, uh, um, a lot of time. But many of the works, I think they've been unco really uncomfortable to be in. And I'm partly interested in that discomfort. And partly I think it's been something I've been really frustrated with in the work because they're really experiences. But what do people do in it? And so this is, like, I think for me, one of the first works where I could see that um, the work had let everybody be in it. And like you didn't have to behave a certain way. Uh, and I think, and I, what I hope is that that, you know, has opened something up for me in terms of thinking about uh, the forms of the work. But, you know, that's also so much for me a consequence of a response to a particular situation or architectural condition that allows it. Like the armory uh, as, a, as a public space doesn't have the expectation of function that other kinds of spaces might have. So there's a lot of factors. Yeah. Anyway, that was not your question, but perhaps interesting. Yeah. Yes. Um, you talked a lot about the uh, reciprocity of touch when you started out between the animals and the human beings. But I noticed in every piece of work, the animals are in a cage or in a glass box. They're constrained, oh. whereas your humans are not. So how does that affect the... I mean, do you think reciprocity is skewed in that way? And if so, where is the leverage line? How do you address that? Yeah, I think... Really good question. Um, I think it's, you know, in some ways it's visual, so that's perhaps why we're reading to them. They, we, we did release them, but how do I as an artist find a form to make present that thing that happens when you actually touch an animal, which is actually invisible? Like, what is the state of that experience? And, and so it isn't going to be a direct route. It doesn't mean that I'm going to ask you to come into the gallery to pet the animal. Well, maybe I will. I don't know. Maybe that's the sheep on the mall. <laughs> But, um, you know, partly I think that remove is also an address to the remove of animals in our landscape. You know, that uh, we, I mean, there was a conversation, for instance, I overheard at the table between a child and a parent. And the child is telling his father, Dad, they're alive. And the father's saying, no, they're not. They're stuffed. No, Dad, they're alive. Like, the kid is, like, watching them. And, and he was responding through his expectations of what you would find in this kind of space, right? So, you know, uh, I mean, the pigeon, the birds were free-flying in both um, the Mattress Factory Carnegie Project and in uh, the Henry, the Canaries. But you're, you're right, you're, they're overhead, you're not, you're not touching them. But the, the project of the work as an artist is how do you make the tactile present? And, you know, that probably goes back to McLuhan in some ways. And, that, and especially how do you do that? How is it a felt experience that's tactile, even if it's not literally touching? And that that's one of the questions of the work. Yeah, thank you for that question. Yeah, one more. Yes, thank you. Athena, yeah. Uh, I, I want to say that I enjoyed the normals of your talk. And I admire your erudition and your multiplicity of interests. And um, uh, I am sometimes, however, lost in the world. 
in other words, uh, it, I wonder if you need all the aspects that you, you, you put into each work. It's like an exhibition rather than a work. And if there is enough of a unity with all the parts, especially I felt that in the New York uh, installation, which had wonderful parts, and each of them was separately wonderful. I don't know if they, anybody could experience all of them and if uh, uh, it was a unified enough experience. Right. Um, that's a that's a actually also a really good question. I mean, what it's like does it does it become a whole thing, right? And so the these parts are all there, and they structure the space, and they structure the time. Um, you can't in any one visit actually maybe necessarily experience all of those. So you know, the in some ways the narrative that I tell is the one the experience that I have as the maker. Um, and I think, you know, some people would come and it's just the swing in the cloth, or maybe it's just the pigeons, or maybe you don't know that the pigeons ever fly. And, um, you know, I think for me that, I don't know if I'm being lazy in my thinking or not, but it's like I think I've also trusted that these things suspend in relation and that the more time you spend with them, you find those connections. But it's not like there's a narrative to get. The it, it's, your, it's about your experience. And I, I think that probably I'll really be rethinking or I'll think about that question a lot as I go forward working with Ann Bogart. We're gonna develop a project together. And we're, at least in our initial conversations, um, thinking about like what is the condition of reading and how do you make that present? Similarly, how do you make tactility present? So not the reading of a particular thing, but what happens when you read. And Anne works with time. She's a director, and we'll be working with the city company actors. And so we're starting this conversation about, well, what is the situation for this, physically? And then how will this perhaps um, allow me to develop how I think about structuring something in time? Because so far, everything is like a field that goes on forever. The work goes on forever. <laughs> the, but it's like, um, it's always in changing relation, but there's an ongoingness. It's like the ocean of the horsehair could keep going if it went outside the architecture. Um, and so uh, it frustrates one sense, I think, of, but like, I want to get it. But you're, it's not something you can get in that way. It I totally, I think, does resist that. Um, so if whether I don't know that that's a problem or strength, yeah, yeah. One more question, yeah. Oh, microphone. Hi, uh, I have a feeling the answer will be no. But, okay. Um, I was wondering if there was anything dystopic um, in a couple of your works, the uh, the Guggenheim piece, um, the piece in which you had the the camera newspaper and also the one in which you read the translation of newspapers to Ellsworth Kelly's painting. Um, just when you were talking about it, like the Guggenheim piece, you said you talked about the contrast between something being alive out in nature and then like having to imitate that that lifelessness, or not, sorry, excuse me, the, the sort of the elements inside a very man-made structure. Um, and then with the newspaper work, talking about the tactility of words, but also like the fact 
experience them another way. Um, because I, you didn't go into what what made you feel that way or what was what was separating you from connecting to the words. But I was wondering if there was any editorial sense coming from you when you made those pieces about um, just sort of like alienation, perhaps, um, or other themes that I throw more words out there because I feel like dystopic is already very like dark. Yeah, I see. <laughs> the alienation and dystopia are strong words. I uh, I think I um, they're not words that I w I use. I think that that what I think about is what is the condition of being a body, and that the condition of being a body and how not the image of a body, but all the experiential self is that that that. I think the work orchestrates the ways in which we're bodies, or it responds to the ways. So, you know, we are always an inside and an outside. You know, our skin is the largest organ of our body. That we are, um, even though if we inherit a Descartian sort of divide uh, of, you know, up here to down below, uh, that that's our experience is not that. And so, I I think my question is really about embodiment and um, that you know we have that ability to language our experience which actually can be revelatory at the same time that it can separate us from something you know so it, but that's more like cultural habit like our need to name something and say what it is is uh, is really um, not necessarily a consequence of language but of culture yeah, well there's an argument can you separate those two? Never mind. Take that back. Um, so, you know, I think that what the work is doing is trying to make experiences to probe, to prod at, to examine the relationships between things. And that everything is in the relationships of the felt quality of this and the presence of that. And that... Um, they're kind of old, I think. You know, I read Vico, and I, I think about, uh, um, you know, the relationship of like in the tower, like the water to the sky. And there, uh, I'm really loved reading Aristotle, which I had never read when I was working on the, this project. So they they feel like um, it's like it's like you know when you go to the Met and you think there's all this really amazing um, there are amazing objects and there's they're so far back in history that it's hard to even wrap your head around the age of some of the objects but you know we, we had to clothe ourselves we had to carry our water in something we had to there's certain sort of bodily human needs that all these objects demonstrate at particular cultural moments in time and I think that the connection of that is something I'm interested in. Like for all of our technological extension, we still haven't figured out how to feed ourselves. You know? Yeah. Uh, so I think if I think maybe we're done, huh? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs>